Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Officer Michael McCrill. He's the community resource officer from the Sydney, Ohio Police Department. Officer McCrill is also a former middle school teacher. He joined the Sydney Police Department in the year 2000 because he had a passion for law enforcement and he wanted to do more for his community. In 2014, he became the community resource officer and he revived the program by reaching out to citizens and businesses to gauge what was needed within their community. Officer McGrill was the recipient of the Distinguished Law Enforcement Community Service Award from Mike DeWine, the Attorney General, in uh, 2016. So, Officer McGrill, welcome. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Okay. A little over a year ago, you led an effort to create a special heroin opiates response team that's modeled after DART in your community with a staff of one, which is you. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that, and maybe we can start with DART and your exposure to DART and how this all came about. The, uh, the DART team is a program that the Lucas County Sheriff's Department put together, and I first heard about it in January of 2016 at the Attorney General's Opiate Conference. And Mr. DeWine had been talking about reaching out to the, to the addicts, recognizing that our, our traditional law enforcement approach of arresting people who were committing a crime was not being effective in deterring this kind of activity. And the DART team had put together a, a model where they'd send a, a law enforcement officer, a paramedic, and a drug and alcohol counselor out to meet with the addicts, to find them on the street shortly after the overdose event, and try to offer them help, try to find out what's behind this, are they willing to go get help, and they've had a great deal of success. Now, currently, I, if I understand it correctly, they're being staffed by 20 deputies, and firefighters or paramedics, and numerous uh, counselors. They've also received funding through various grants. I think they received support from Mr. DeWine's office. And we looked at that and said, wow, that's awesome. Now what can we do? We came back to Sydney. I sat down with Captain Tangeman, who's the head of our, our detective section, uh, where my community resource division is housed. And we talked with our chief and met with our local hospital, mental health counselors, uh, representatives from the health department, the fire department, and all sat down and realized that manpower was the big issue, uh, especially with the counseling centers where they have to, you know, have billable hours 
And if we could not guarantee a person, that made it difficult for them to call it a billable hour. So we, we encountered some hurdles with that, uh, uh, you know, just in terms of manpower and funding. Uh, we waited a while and figured nothing more. We, we couldn't see any more coming of this. So we just decided let's do it on our own. Uh, and my job as community resource officer was the, was the perfect fit for that. I have the time. I, as a community resource officer, I'm meant to be out in the public in a non-traditional fashion. I don't go out and answer calls for service. I don't pull people over speeding. I could, but I, but I focus on other things. And so what we came up with was to reach out. I, I use our database. Anytime the officers are called to an overdose scene, there's a call for service made. And every week I run that list. I get the names, and I try to go visit the, 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 per, the victim of the overdose, uh, if I can, within within that next week. And I sit down with them, and I have a list of the three counseling facilities in town that have drug and alcohol capabilities. And I also have a list of the sober living homes uh, here in, in the Sydney and Shelby County area. And I also have lists of uh, the Narcotics Anonymous meetings, the Naranon meetings, and the, uh, the Celebrate Recovery meetings that occur here in this area. And I share those with the with the addict. I talk with them. I, I you know find out kind of what's what's their story. What's what's behind uh, this event that they've they've been through. And I, right now, I wish I could say we've got wonderful success and 100 percent of the people get help and move on. But that that would not be correct. I right now I'm running about 25 percent of the people that I offer help to follow through and will meet with the counselor next. And of those. Um, a few continue on to the, to the next step to go to a detox facility, uh, but many of them don't go on to that next step. But that's, that's, the, nature, that's the nature of addiction. Again, it's not a, we're, we're used to quick fixes. We're used to pulling into the carryout and, and ordering our drink or our food, and it's delivered to us immediately, and it happens right away, and we're satisfied with that. Yep. It doesn't happen with, with the addictions. Sure. Um, Relapses. Sometimes it takes hmm. multiple overdoses before a person's ready for help. Yeah. Um, and, and and it's not a quick fix. And it, it, it you know, I, I would love it to be, hey, I'm Officer McGrill. I talk to you, you're inspired, and you get help. That doesn't always happen that way. And unfortunately, sometimes the overdose, we, we're not there in time. And unfortunately, Greg, as you know, and I'm just, I'm inspired by you doing something positive with, with the, the, the tragic event that you suffered. And Thank you, Officer. You know, I, I've been able to visit numerous families uh, here in town that have lost a loved one due to addiction. And I've attended funerals. And that has been very powerful because one, the police presence at a at a an addict's funeral is, is again a non traditional approach. But it has also allowed me to connect with other people who are in addiction when they realize my purpose is not there, you know, for, for any law enforcement event. It's it's there to to mourn the loss of someone, just as if they were a victim of, a, of, a, of, a, of an assault or a murder, we would mourn their loss. I mourn their loss when, when, when they're the victim of an overdose. Well, and also, you're reaching out to the community in an entirely different fashion that way. By be- that being present at the funeral, it becomes very clear that you're there in a compassionate role to mm-hmm. even help others. Um, not only to mourn the loss, but also to help others that may be struggling with those same issues. And uh, as a leader in the community that represents help, that's that's profound. I, I believe so, and like I said, I feel very I feel very good about what I do. Very very you know I'm very fulfilled from from getting to do this. This is in my mind. This is why I got into law enforcement. This is you know we all give the standard answer. We want to help in our community. Well, 
here is a whole group of people that need help and, and you know we can reach out to and so this is uh it's neat to be a part of a program like this and again although i'm the only officer assigned to do this my other officers tell them hey look there is help and another officer is going to come alongside and visit you in a couple of days you need to listen to what he tells you i mean so they're they're compassionate and they're an important piece because they're the, they're that first step and you know although they've just coming out of their overdose the way those officers respond the compassion that they show and letting them know that hey helps on the way stand by you know sure. helps me out a great deal yeah so speak for a minute about how your background really led you to be particularly I'll call it well qualified to be <laughs> compassionate and empathetic in this role that you find yourself in today well, as you, as you noted earlier, Greg, I, I was a school teacher, and I, I was a school teacher for about 13 years. I taught sixth grade, and I learned that the, the the young person that would walk into my sixth grade room in early September, late August, was not always the same person I saw leave my room the following June at the end of the year. I realized that that face that we see, you think, oh, great, this kid's coming into my room. I've heard stories about this kid. And then you realize there's a neat kid behind that story or behind that, that, that impression that others may have given you. So it, it's just kind of nice. I guess I, I, I knew that when I came to this job, that there's always something more behind what's presented to us. So when I'm seeing, I'm responding to an overdose victim who's laying on the floor taking that gurgling breath, requiring the use of Narcan, I realize there's more to this than just this immediate event. And so that's, uh, again, it just allowed me to, to understand and see that, uh, we need to look behind the event itself and, and, and find out what is there here? What's what's going on? Is there something we can do? And is this person willing to help or receive the help that we're offering to them? Wow. So similar response teams have all kinds of resources to make this happen. And it seems to me that, you know, it's only due to your passion that this all came about. So right now, though, how can you keep up with it? What what kind of demand do you have there? Well, we're, we're running, um, it, last week, the last two weeks, I, I've only run three or four names each week. Unfortunately, in both of the two preceding weeks, two of them were fatals. Um, and a couple of them were repeat, repeats, and one of them went on to jail. Um, other weeks, I've had six to nine people that I need to visit. So it, it kind of varies from time to time. Um, as we're kind of working through this, uh, the Shelby County Counseling Center, which is part of our Tri-County Board of Mental Health and Addiction Services here in this area, services Miami, Shelby, and Dark County, um, Shelby County Counseling has kind of come alongside and made appointments available to me. They said, we will, we will tell you, you know, early in the week, uh, you know, perhaps Tuesday afternoon and Thursday afternoon, I've got two slots that are yours. You find someone who's willing, willing to get help and willing to come immediately and we will see them immediately. So there's no waiting in that case. And that has been huge because the, the biggest obstacle that I think a lot of programs have is where to take the addict when they say they're ready for help. Absolutely. And not have that waiting period. Um, when we first started looking at detox facilities, uh, the closest for us is in Dayton, 30 miles south. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was a 10 or 11-day waiting period to get in there, and I was appalled at that. Until I heard on, on the national news that the average wait was 18 days, and I felt pretty good about our 10-day. Yeah, It's but, still longer than I would like. Sure, because what are they going to do I, in the meantime while they're waiting? Right, they're going to use. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and I've had that happen where 
I'm working with an addict who wants help, and I would love to. And I say to them, you know, try not to use between now and the time we can get you there. But that's that's not really a realistic expectation for someone suffering from the disease of addiction. No. So I usually tell them, I I know it's like asking the sun not to rise tomorrow, but yeah. do me a favor if you can use enough to stay well and yeah. use with somebody nearby who isn't using. So that if you're in, you know, if you if you overdose, there's someone here to call for help. Um, Narcan is a is a or naloxone is a is a a wonderful you know a drug that's been available to us through Project Dawn. Uh, our supervisors all carry it. Our drug unit carries it. I carry it. Um, our fire department has had it for for many years, and we only began to carry it here in the past six months. But our fire department, because they're dispatched simultaneously, so we didn't didn't always know if we needed it. But since our officers have been carrying it, we've used it four times because the squad is is close and on the way, but the officer's there immediately and says, let me go ahead and just administer this now. Let's not wait another 30 seconds. Yeah. So, you know, it's 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 one of those tools that's available. Um, that came through our health department, Shelby County Health Department. Um, R.G. Eilerman over there uh, worked through a grant and obtained that for our police department, for our village police departments, and also for the Shelby County Sheriff's Department locally. So let me step back just a second. Mm-hmm just to absorb this. Okay. You advise people that are going to use, you advise them, you, an officer, you know, a law officer, Mm -hmm. are advising addicts how to use responsibly, I'll call it, and safely, as safely as possible. I I tell them I would would like for them not to use. And obviously, legally, I can't give a person permission to do an illegal act. But I tell them also, I recognize that you're suffering from a disease. And that you may not have the control to stop. And so I ask them, I tell them, if, you know, if you're, if you're going to use, try to use just enough to keep from being sick. Try not to use enough to get the high. Um, you know, I said, and, and try to use with somebody nearby that can call for help. You know, ideally, yes, I would love them not to use at all. Sure. But I, you know, that's, you know, it's almost asking the impossible of someone in the midst of their disease. Mm-hmm. I think it's yeah, tremendous. I, I think it's tremendous that you're coaching them how to how to use use safely. Have someone else there. That's that's terrific. Some might take I'm, exception. They might think, "Well, sure. you're you're you know you're enabling you're them. Encur- you're encouraging an addict to use. Right, right. And I, how would you I, respond? I, I would say I'm not encouraging them to use. I'm understanding that right now that's a fact of their addiction. That they're going, that they they can't quit. If it was just as simple as saying, you know what, I'm going to quit eating cookies this month because I want to drop ten pounds. Most of us can do that. That's what opiate addiction, heroin addiction, is not near the same thing. I mean, people tell me, I've had guys tell me, hey, I quit smoking, you know, so they should be able to quit what they're doing. And I said, that's great. I'm glad that you did that. Mm-hmm. However, opiate addiction is not the same as tobacco addiction. It, 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 the, the, the professionals tell me that it's, it's so much more difficult to quit. Yeah. And although can be done by an individual, typically it requires the assistance of professional counseling, medically assisted treatment, support groups, and various combinations of those things for each separate individual because no, nobody's path to recovery is identical to anybody else's. Everybody's path is different. Yeah. So, Officer McGrill, you made DART a reality in your community. So let's talk about how long it took to get that up and rolling and the hurdles that you had to overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I, we've been able to make it happen here because of one, I've got the support of Chief Balling, our police chief, and my captain, Captain Jerry Tangeman. Uh, and when you've got the support of the two two of the top officials in your department, that makes it a whole lot easier because they're willing to to allow me to do these things. Um, how how we made it a reality? Well, we like I said, we waited a few months and then realized that that getting all the same people on board that that Dart has, and I'm sure their program didn't start in one day either. Um, that that let's just start with one. Let's start with you know if we can't do the the big thing, let's do the small thing, and start that way. And like I said, now I've got Shelby County Counseling coming along and alongside and giving me guaranteed spots that I can use for the addicts that I find. Um, the other hurdles. Um, Public perception uh, is, a, is a big one. As you mentioned, you know, if you're talking to someone about their use and you tell them, you know, I know you're going to continue to use, it's almost like you're endorsing or encouraging that. Uh, I guess I could, I'd say I'm acknowledging that they probably will continue to use. Um, and then a lot of times the, the naloxone is, is a public hurdle that people say, I'm not sure that we should be administering naloxone to someone repeatedly. So how'd you uh, overcome that? Well, that's interesting. I, I, I try not to get angry. Because I, I, I recognize that that person has probably never stood over someone taking their last breath. And maybe they've not been touched by a family member or a friend that is suffering from this. And I, so I try, I try not to get angry, but I do get passionate. And I, I had a conversation with one, one lady, and I said, just so, you under, just so I understand what you're telling me. I said, ma'am, I perfectly understand what you're saying. And I won't tell you that sometimes law enforcement officers don't have the dark humor to cope. When they get back to the station and say, maybe we should put check marks on their forehead or something, and after the third one, you don't get any more. But I can also tell you, when any officer is standing over a person taking their last breath, you would give your own body parts to save that person. I said, so let me just understand what you're telling me. You want me to have the ability to save a person in my pocket, arrive at a scene, and in a matter of a few seconds, make a judgment over whether this person's life is worth saving. Well, that's not at all what I said was her response. I said, well, it's, it's kind of what you said. You want me to not give naloxone. She said, well, I just think you're enabling the addicts. And I said, you're right, ma'am. I, I, it is. It's enabling them to take a breath and to breathe for one more day. It may enable them to continue to use, but it also may enable them to, to, um, to get clean and to get sober. And I tell the story of a young girl named Cassie uh, here from my community. And Cassie is kind of the reason I started to have this passion she overdosed back in 2012, and I was there. She was Narcan, and she eventually had to go to prison for a year. But before that, she was Narcan two more times. After her first event, I won't say it was a voice of God directly speaking, but it was an over-intrusive, over-powerful thought that entered my head that said, this is one of my people, too. What are you doing? And I kind of, well, I filed the report. No, what are you doing? Well, I called the rescue squad. No, what are you doing? And that's when I linked up with Samaritan Works Incorporated here in town. They run a recovery program. They run two houses, one six for six men and six women, two separate houses. And it's a sober living environment. And so I came along and joined that board and was on there from uh, 2012 until, or, until early 2017. And I went back to Cassie with a business card for Samaritan Works the next day. And I'm in uniform and I knock at the door thinking, I've got the answer here for you, Cassie. And I hear whispers behind the door, hey, it's the cops. Don't answer the door. <laughs> so I went back the next day in plain clothes. She answered the door, and Cass and I talked out on the sidewalk, and I offered her the help. And she said, I'm, I'm, I, I thank you, but I don't need it. I can quit anytime I want. You know, it's awesome that you're here. Um, I saw Cassie 
the year after she got out of prison, and I didn't recognize her. She says, you don't remember me, do you? I said, you have to give me a name. She said, I'm Cassie. She, she had put on healthy weight. She had a sparkle in her eye, and she was a 4.0 psychology major in college with the hope of working uh, with the children of addicts. She was Narcan three times. And so I, you know, I tell people, there's, there's the story right there. I mean, wow. that's, if we'd not used that the third time, if we'd said, no, third, third time you don't get it, hmm. we wouldn't have this. And how many children is she going to work with? How many addicts might she with her story and help? So, you know, I realize that's not the common story. I realize that more often than not, the, the addiction will, will continue and they may never choose to get the help. But I, I like the I like the once upon a time Cassie happily ever after. I, I want the I want the fairy tale for all the people we deal with, yeah. and we'll just we'll continue to work on that. That's amazing, just amazing. So now a year into the program, um, so you you're probably really happy. I, well, obviously you're elated with the <laughs> results. And and it's made a huge impact, I know, in your community. And while you'd like to see the figure of uh, the percentage of 25% that you've mm-hmm. shepherded into, uh, into treatment go up, I'm sure that's going to continue to build over time. So let's look ahead to the future. What do you see happening next to the program? Well, what's already happened is as the word gets out, and the, the, the wonderful video the Attorney General's office did, the impact of one, um, has it just in the past few weeks has, has been seen in my community. We used it as a, at a, uh, a meeting of our, our uh, county safety council, which is a, a Bureau of Workman's Comp uh, meeting of many business leaders in town. And they saw that, and they've shown it to their employees. Well, that's resulted in me getting phone calls from addicts now who are reaching to me, which is different than me going to them. And I believe when we get the addicts asking, saying, hey, what can you do? What can I, how can I get help? That's, that's, we're going to see an increased percentage because that's the person asking for help, not me going to them. So, and we've already seen that in, in terms of some of the people I've talked to. Um, they don't want help at the time, but two months later they'll call me back and say, hey, uh, you talked to me a couple months ago, if you remember. I say, yes, I do. And they say, is, is that offer still good? <laughs> yes, it is. You know, and we, we work through the program at that point. Um, what I would love to see happen is you know, just to, to have a counselor from one of the counseling centers assigned to me that I can use on a more regular basis because I'm sure that I'm not saying I'm not I, without a professional social work background in drug and alcohol work. I'm sure there are things that I could say or just things I would know that they would know that I don't because that's their profession. Sure, they can or help me out by being present with the addict when we're talking. Absolutely, or getting you know assigned a part-time peer recovery coach. Oh, absolutely. That's one of the things that we're doing here in Summit County with the quick response teams, as they call them here, that are being rolled out. And uh, through the ADM board, they're pairing them up with uh, peer recovery coaches. And we're we're in early days of that, but the results seem to be very positive. Right. And if I understand that, a peer recovery coach is where they've got somebody who's possibly been through an addiction themselves. That's a requirement. To become a okay. peer recovery coach, you have to be in recovery and have gone through that uh, yourself. So you're further up oh. what I like to to call the mountain that they have to climb, yep. right? We talked about that before. You know, yeah. so they're they're climbing Mount Everest, and and so they've got somebody else engaged who's further up that mountain, and that yep. that someone is the peer recovery coach, and connecting yep. them to that whole equation, um, it, it seems to be working. Well, I spoke to Cassie the other day, and I said, hey, when's your degree going to be done? And she said, August. 
And I said, wow, wouldn't it be great if I could, you know, enlist your, your services? Sure. Because, I, because she's been there, done that. And she can, I can point to her and say, look, it is possible. Here's a perfect example. Yeah. You know, that's inspirational in a way that I can never be because I haven't walked that path. Could you imagine tell, that? Could I, you imagine that? I tell that? the addicts, I, yeah. I, I will walk the path beside you, but I can never walk the path you're on. Sure. Could I've you, been there. Could you imagine the power of that with that story that you have and the history with her, plugging her yes. now into your team? That'd just be yes. amazing. She would be She would be awesome. And I know she would love to do that because she, her whole goal is to is to, to pay this back. I mean, she's been part of the, the, the Narcotics Anonymous Recovery Program and she understands that, you know, one of their last steps is to pay it forward and to do do that for others. So she's she's modeling that. That's great. So what advice would you offer others, other communities, on how to start a uh, similar program such as you started in Sydney? Mm-hmm. I, again, that's that was the purpose of that video that the Attorney General's office put out is to, to show that you, you don't have to wait until you've got multiple officers counselors, paramedics, and a whole lot of funding. You can go with one person. My advice would be to do it because in the addict, with the addicts that I've spoken to, a lot of them look at me and they say, I can't believe that a cop is talking to me like this. My response is, I can't believe it. Why, why wouldn't we talk to you like this? This is protect and serve, and it didn't say anything about, you know, whether, you know, addicts only or non-addicts or anything of that nature. Um, my advice would be to do it. Don't don't wait. Don't, you know, if you can get the funding, great. If you can get support from a counseling center or your local hospitals or your health department, that's awesome. But start. And if nothing more than being the first responder yourself, have a list of agencies. Say, hey, here are the counseling centers in our area that have drug and alcohol counselors available. When you're ready, make this phone call and leave that paperwork with them when, when, you, when you leave the call. Huh. My other response to them would be to, when you, when you speak to the addict, Realize you're speaking to someone's son, someone's daughter, or someone's mother or father, sister or brother. You're speaking to a living, breathing human being, not, don't think of them as an addict, don't think of them as a label, as a suspect, as a defendant. Think of them as a human being. You're, you're talking to someone who is suffering from a disease. If you had a cancer victim in front of you, you would talk to them differently, probably. If you had a diabetes a diabetic in front of you is coming out of a, a, a diabetic, uh, you know, an insulin uh, issue. We would talk to them differently. Talk to the addict the exact same way. Know their name. Call them by their first name. You know, that'd be my advice. Well, Officer McGrill, I want to thank you for your time today. And would you have any final thoughts for our listeners about how they can make a difference in the fight against the opioid epidemic? Absolutely. First of all, change the story, change the language. Talk about, you know, talk about addiction, you know, victims of addiction. Um, think of it in terms of cancer and diabetes and how we respond to those. You know, um, realize every path to recovery is different, and and many of them relapse is absolutely going to be a normal part of that. It'd be nice if it wasn't, if it was a one and done, but that's not realistic given the nature of opiate addiction. And the last statement that I use, I, I've got it on the on the my the front of my Sydney Attic Assistance Team. That's what we call our call our call me and my me and my group of me. Um, I have a quote at the bottom from Admiral Farragut, who was an admiral in the Civil War, and it's "Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead." And apparently that phrase came from when his his ship was engaged in a battle. I believe it was in Mobile Bay, and he realized to to 
win and be effective in this battle, he needed to move his ship forward. And his crew said to him, but Admiral, what about the torpedoes that are ahead of us? You know, moving into this area is dangerous. There's, there's, there's all these things that are going to happen to us if we go out there. We may fail. He said, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. And when I, tell, when I talk with the addicts, I, I share that story with them. And I say, you know, people are going to tell you you can't do this. Your, your own inner voice, your addiction is going to tell you, you can't live without me. You can't make it without me. You need me. And I tell them, those are, those are the torpedoes that are being launched at you. So damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Let's move forward and, uh, you know, let, let, let's, let's, let's fight the battle. So that, that would be my advice to people. Outstanding. Well, once again, thank you, Officer McGrill. You're more than welcome. And thank you, Greg. I appreciate what your organization is doing. And again, I'm I, just inspirational that you've taken, taken a, a tragedy and turned it into something positive for others. We've been visiting today with Officer Michael McGrill, who's a leader in his community who, a little over a year ago, led an effort to create a special heroin and opioids response team modeled after DART. While most communities have a staff of many, sometimes 10 or 20 people, Officer McGrill did it with a staff of one. Living proof that one person can make a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things that are making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.